Amen. Uh, Italian opera singer uh, Luciano Pavarotti uh, became one of the most well-known tenors of all time. Uh, he earned the title uh, The King of the High Seas. Uh, he sold over 100 million copies uh, of his records, and his first three tenors record became the best-selling classical album of all time. As Pavarotti thought about his success, he shared advice from his father. He said, when I was a boy, my father, a baker, introduced me to the wonders of song. He urged me to work hard every day to develop my voice. Arrigo Pola, a professional tenor in my hometown of Modena, Italy, took me in as a pupil. I was enrolled in a teacher's college as well. On graduating, I asked my father, shall I be a teacher or a singer? We often turn to our fathers when we have a difficult choice to make. Uh, Fernando Pavarotti looked at his son and said, Luciano, if you try to sit on two chairs, you will fall between them. For life, you must choose one chair. Well, Pavarotti took his father's advice. He later commented, I chose one. It took seven years of study and frustration before I made my first professional appearance. It took another seven years to reach the Metropolitan Opera. And now I think, whether it's laying bricks, writing a book, wherever we choose, whatever we choose, we should give, it ourselves, give ourselves to it. Commitment, that's the key. Choose one chair. Well, the Apostle John, our spiritual forefather, offers us the same advice. For life, you must choose one chair. You must either sit with God the Father or you choose to sit with the father of lies, the devil. You can't choose two chairs. If you try to sit in both, you will fall, and great will be your fall. As we work through our text this morning, I, I want to ask you a series of questions to help you discern what chair you have currently chosen, and by God's grace through his word to exhort you to choose the right chair and deepen your commitment to stay there. Uh, the first question is, is, are you confident or fearful? Are you confident or fearful? Now, John uh, is a tender, spiritual father. Uh, he, he knows that the church is going through a difficult trial, as we've been seeing throughout this letter. Several members of the church have left this body and has, have, have gone off and, and done something different, uh, started teaching false things about Christ, denying his humanity. Uh, and he warned those, as we looked at last week, of those people who are trying to deceive him, those who stand against Christ. So he continues a fatherly exhortation and reminder by lifting their eyes to eternity, the eternity that awaits them. Look at our text this morning in 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, most of you here on a Sunday, Sunday morning have made a decision to follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Um, but you must continue to make that same decision each and every day. The life of discipleship is, now, is not a one-time decision, but decisions that you make one at a time for your lifetime. So 
The life of discipleship is not a one-time decision, but it's a series of decisions that you make one at a time for your lifetime. John Flavel wisely writes, the greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. The greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. John Flavel's language of of, of keeping one's heart with God is what John's saying here. The life of discipleship is to abide with God. We see that right in verse 28. Our, Our abiding with Christ will reveal whether we are confident or fearful at the return of Christ or when we meet him in death. John reminds his readers that Jesus Christ is going to return. This is something Jesus often said to his own disciples, made them think about his his coming back. So, if Jesus Christ were to return this afternoon, would you be confident, joyful at his return? Or would you be ashamed and shrink back in fear? The answer may reveal what chair you have chosen. You know, as a child, you have, you have, you ever hear a mother, your mother say, wait till your father gets home. Now, the statement itself is, is not neither good nor bad. It all depending on the action that preceded it. I mean, if you skip school, didn't do your chores, you may get that stern pronouncement of judgment. Wait till your father gets home. You know what was coming. You may have shrinked back in fear. But if you studied hard, got an A on a test that you really were, the class you were struggling with, and you went outside and you raked your, your neighbor's leaves, you may get a joyful pronouncement. Wait till your father gets home. So the, 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 the outcome is the same. The, the, the father's returned. The son is going to return. But are we going to be joyful or are we going to shrink back in fear? John shows us that we think about the future and Christ's return will indicate how we live today. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You can determine if you belong to Christ, if you have been born of him, if you are like him. If he is righteous, you should be righteous. We even saw that he who calls you is holy, you should be holy. You know, one of the greatest burdens I have as a pastor is that, is that people have a, a confident faith and an accurate confidence in that faith. So imagine a kid in elementary school who kind of boldly and confidently goes to the, to the old chalkboard or a whiteboard these days, right, to answer that, that math question of addition, only to realize that when he's at the board, it's not addition, but it's multiplication, and he has no clues of his timetables. Well, he's going to work back to his seat, and what's going to happen? He's going to get really small. He's going to shrink down in his chair because he's ashamed. He's embarrassed. I think many people are confident in Christ, even though their lives are not characterized by godliness and righteousness. They go like that child to the table, boldly and confident in their faith, but yet they don't know the Lord. The Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever recorded, Matthew 7, 17 through 23, God, God's word says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, Jesus connects knowing him and how we live. Knowing him and righteousness. Workers of lawlessness do not know God. Those who make a habit of sinning have not been born of God. On the other hand, those who do good and those who live for righteousness can be confident that they actually know the Lord. For he who is righteous, we are righteous. So ask yourself, if Christ were to return today, would you be confident? Would you be joyful at his coming? Or would you shrink back in fear, knowing he would bring judgment? First question, are you confident or fearful? Second, are you known or unknown? Are you known or unknown? And the believer can have confidence on Christ's return because we are loved by God. We are adopted as his children. It's almost as if John is writing this letter thinking about Christ's return, and he is overwhelmed with joy about, about the coming of, of Christ. And he wants others to, to, to bask in that love that God has for his, his children. Look what he says in 1 John 3, 1, and 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know him. Beloved, you are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Sinners, welcome to saints. Rebels as friends, the lost as found, orphans as children. What love could remember no wrongs we have done, omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum, thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. I mean, you, you sense the joy that John is, is wanting the, the, his, his readers to hear. Remember the, what he writes in the, in the prologue of John's gospel. He writes, Jesus came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of God, but born of God. You can be born of God today if you don't know Christ by receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. If you're not a follower of Christ, let me just explain why Christians have, have chosen the one chair to be a child of God and to follow Jesus Christ fully. The love that God has poured out to us is undeserved. We are disobedient. We were disobedient children. We deserve judgment, and yet God sent Jesus to take that judgment for us. Jesus lived a perfect life, and he died a sinner's death. He paid the penalty for all our sins, past, present, and future, for all who repent of their sins and trust in 
Christ. He died and was buried. But then he overcame the grave. Jesus was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father and now stands with the Father forever as our righteous advocate. His resurrection assures our resurrection. Jesus died to know us not merely as our creator, but as our redeemer. He died and was raised so we who were lost could be found. We who are no longer enemies, no longer fear death or judgment because God our Father Jesus is our elder brother, and we are his children, have been born again by the Spirit of God. So if you are here today and you are not a follower of Christ, can I just encourage you to learn more about this Jesus? Learn more about the deep, deep love that God has poured out to those who come to him in faith. But let me just say this. Remember, John is writing this to the church. And what does he say? Beloved, you are God's children now. We are not fully what we will be become, but we are God's children now. We are known by God. And because we are known by God, we are unknown by the world. Or I could say it opposite. If you are known by the world, you are unknown by God. Jesus was unknown by the world. They did not know him. What, is it, what does he say in John 15, 18 through 21? If the world hates you, know that it was hated hated me before it hated you. Remember, there were people who really hated the church in John's day. They left them. They were, they were speaking ill against Christ and ill against the people of God. There was hatred. Why do you think this whole passage, this whole, this whole section of Scripture is about loving your, your neighbor, loving one another? The whole epistle is, is because there's not a lot of love that they're receiving. They're being challenged to love even though they're experiencing hate. So again, John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Remember, this church is struggling, dealing with people leaving the congregation, hating them, feeling isolated and alone, feeling weary and beat down, persecuted, squeezed by the world, and yet John and the Lord Jesus want them to know that their treatment from this world is a sign that they belong to God. It's a sign they belong to Jesus because he experienced the same treatment. Friends, if we share in the sufferings of Christ, we can be confident that we will share in the glories of Christ. We shall be like him. Upon our death or Christ's return, God will take our lowly bodies and transform them to be like his glorious body. We should be encouraged to press on in the midst of persecution because one day this world will be in the rear view and we will be with our God. Does that stir your heart? Does that create a deeper desire and a longing that you would be with the Lord Jesus? Sadly, too many churches and too many professing Christians do not want to stand apart from the world. They kind of want to cozy up and be right there with the world. And yet the world and its desires are passing away and too many professing Christians are trying to choose two chairs. They're trying to choose the world to please the world while they're trying to choose Christ. Friends, you cannot have two masters. 
You cannot love the world, for if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. The life with Jesus on earth is going to be hard. I mean, Jesus, we, we've heard that through trials and tribulations, you will enter into the kingdom of God. It's going to be hard, but it will be eternally worth it. These light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Third question. Are you practicing sinning or righteousness? Are you practicing sinning or righteousness? I hope you realize by now that I'm not very creative in how I uh, plan my sermons. I basically just look for words that are in the text and use them for my outline, right? Uh, so these are, this is right there for you, right? Are you practicing sinning or righteousness? Now, we know it's impossible to walk in two different directions. You, you can't walk one way and the other. We are made to only walk one way, just like we are made to only choose one chair. To follow Jesus is to walk with Jesus, to abide with him. John could not be clear in this passage about what happens when you choose to walk in sin and when you choose to walk in righteousness. Look what he says in verses 4 through 8. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now John has already said much, something very similar throughout this epistle. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He said, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. And yet God is faithful and just to, to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So he's not saying that Christians don't have any sin. We're all going to be in the flesh, and we're going to make mistakes. If you're dear children, I write to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we're going to sin. But here's the thing. As we grow in Christ, we're not going to sin as much or we're going to sin less. If we confess our sins, God will forgive. When we hope in Christ, we are purified. That's what the verse 3 says. Those who, who, who look to Christ as pure, he'll purify ourselves. We become what we behold. Jesus Christ came to take away our sins. Jesus wants to forgive our sins, to cleanse us of our sins, to wash our sins away, to cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. Jesus Christ came to deal with our sins so that we could become children of God. Beloved, we must behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus has no sin. And therefore, if we are in him, we are positionally keyword, without sin, as we are declared righteous. And because we're declared righteous, we should want to progressively be without sin. If we are not progressively without sin, we may not be positionally without sin. John is, is saying that when we will not be sinless as Christians, but as we grow in Christ, we will sin less. So in your life, if you are not continuing to, to become like Jesus, you may not actually know Jesus. That's what John is trying to say. 
And listen, we have to take sin seriously. Sin is lawlessness. Sins are not habits, hang-ups, or hiccups. Sin is an offense to a holy God. It is against the created order. It is, against the con- it is contrary to the revealed will of God. It cannot be taken lightly. Sin is so serious that the Father sent the Son to be slaughtered for the sin of sinners. If you make a habit of sinning, a practice of lawlessness, remember Jesus' words. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you make a practice of sinning, you are in eternal danger. If you live in sin, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Nothing could be more serious. As a spiritual father, John tells us to choose the right chair. He's little children. You can feel the the, the empathy, the compassion he has for these people, little children. Let no one deceive you. We live in an upside-down world. Right is wrong, wrong is right. One can say we live in a Romans 1 world where we do not live in the gratefulness to God, but we exchange the glory of the immortal God for worthless idols. The end of Romans 1 shows what happens when people do not honor God. We make a practice of sinning. Romans 1. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to the debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, before you are too quick to to point the finger at others, listen to what Paul adds. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, that you you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render each according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Sin is a major theme in the Bible. It's not always a major theme in how we talk about it in, in churches. But sin is a major problem in the church because the church is full of sinners. And if people choose to sit in the chair of sin, you are in grave danger. And then remember, John is writing this epistle not only as a warning, he's writing this so that we would have confidence in the day of judgment, that we would know that we belong to Christ, 
So in 1 John 5, 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants us to know that we have eternal life and, and God is going to accept us in glory. But hear me, those who have eternal life are not those whose life is characterized by sin, but of righteousness. You can know that you belong to God if you desire to please him. But if you are in sin consistently, you cannot remain there. If you are truly a believer in Christ, your sin will make you miserable. That's what happens. Those of you who are here today who are, who are walking in sin and you know you're being disobedient, there's a greater unrest in your soul, a greater misery that grows in your soul. The weight of conviction comes down upon you. Here today, that the Lord Jesus Christ is, is beckoning you, urging you, pleading with you to come back to his grace. He's an invitation saying, come back to me so I can take your sins and cast them away from you. That's what God wants to do. He's begging you to do so. If you are not in Christ, he's saying the same thing. Let me deal with your sins and cleanse you and purify you. But if you remain in your sins, more unrest, more misery, And eventually, torment. If you're unmoved by your sin, unaffected, sensing no conviction, happy to sin, the Bible would say you are not of God. Why? Well, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. To be one with Jesus is to want to destroy the works of the flesh in your life and in the world. The world wants to deceive you. It wants you to minimize your sin. It wants to seduce you, to, to grab onto you, to pull you closer and closer away from the Father and closer to hell. So they want you to make a practice of sinning. It doesn't tell you the end goal. It slowly just lures you in. Do not minimize sin. So is your life characterized by sin? Are you known more for sin or for righteousness? Are you walking with Jesus? Would Jesus be happy with your thought life? Would he be happy with what you do in private when no one's around? Would there be one sin that defines you? Are you a gossip? Are you a liar? Are you a thief? Are you an angry person? Are you rebellious to your parents? Are you practicing immorality? Are you a drunkard? Are you making a practice of sinning? Are you choosing the chair of sin or the chair of righteousness? Remember, you can only choose one. Last question. Are you a child of God or the devil? Are you a child of God or the devil? We cannot give birth to ourselves. No one should look down on others if they are caught in sin. If God has freed us from sin, it is God that has freed us from sin. Let me say that again. If God has freed us from sin, it is God who has freed us from sin. No man shall boast. We only choose him because he has first chosen us. If we have been chosen by God, if we are a new creation in Christ, if we have been born again by the Spirit of Christ, we cannot remain in sin. We have a new nature, and our new nature will be at war against our old nature. Now hear me. 
If you are struggling with sin, you're in a good place. If you stop struggling and you've just given yourself over to sin, you are in grave danger. Look what John says here, the end of our passage. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, we all know that we're not going to overcome sin immediately when we come to faith. We will struggle against our flesh, but we will not remain in our flesh. The seed of God that has been planted in our heart abides in the believer and will continue to grow and to grow and to grow and to grow, and it will change our desires and grow our love for the Father. If we have been born of God, we cannot continue in sin. But hear me. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to save thieves, save adulterers. He came to save slanderers and the self-righteous. He came to save sinners of all kinds. But he did not merely come to save sinners. He came to transform them into his image so that we would look like him. We are God's children now. And we are not yet what we will be. But hear me, we are no longer what we were. I love how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy the sin that is in you. He came to wash you, to sanctify you, and to justify you for the glory of his name by the Spirit of God. He did not merely come to save you. He came to transform you so that you would be like him. Charles Spurgeon uh, wrote a sermon with the, uh, the last three words of 1 John 3, 1. We simply read, and we are. We are children of God. He asked the question in that sermon, am I a child of God? And then he answers. Here, the great prince of preachers. Am I a child of God? Then listen, I have a love to my father. If you are truly born from above, your heart goes out in longings after him to whom you owe your heavenly birth. If you are no child of God, you can live without him. Indeed, you will try to do so. To the most of men, God is virtually non-existent. They look up to the skies and view the wondrous lights of heaven, but they never think of him who shines through them. They do not believe that there is such a being, or else they would own that there must be a design and designer, and there is an end of the matter with them. Whether there is a God or not is no matter of importance to them. Oh, how different it is with the regenerate, those who've been born again. To us, God is all in all. To love God is the great fact of my life. 
The tears run down my cheeks when I think of him. He is everything to me. And then he continues. Now the true child of God not only shows love and trust, but he also suffers sorrow when he has grieved his father. If you grieve over your sin, if you grieve over error, if you grieve over your omissions, if you go to God with tears in your eyes because you are not what you would have to be, this sorrow proves that you are one of his children. He that can sin without sorrow will one day sorrow without hope. A broken heart is one of the surest signs of sonship. If we have this grief, this proves that we are sons of God. And we are. Beloved, is God everything to you? Abide in him. Are you grieved over your sin? Repent and abide in him. If you have called upon Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you know that he is righteous and pure, then you and I can boldly say, what kind of love has the Father given to us that we should be called children of God? And we are. In Christ, we are a child of God. We are born again, adopted into his family, given the seed of righteousness that will blossom in time. The question is not what chair we have chosen to sit in. But what chair are we sitting in? There's no such thing as future obedience. We can't change the past. We can choose today who we are going to serve. Can I just encourage you? Choose Christ today. Abide in him. Beloved, what kind of love has the Father given to us that we are children of God, sinners of all kinds, adopted into his family. Let us live up to that glorious title, child of God. Heavenly Father, I pray, I pray that you would save. God, that you would save I pray the weight of this word would fall upon our hearts, God, and those who do not know you have been, who have been exposed to, to not know you would, would run to you for your grace, that you would give it freely. God, I pray that you would be pressing upon them by the power of the Holy Spirit to, to come to you and you would welcome them in and, and sanctify them and justify them by your grace. And God, I pray for those here who know that they belong to you, God, that even now their hearts would be overwhelmed with joy that they are children of God, that you have poured your love to them. Oh God, I pray that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they belong to you. God, I pray that we would always choose the right chair, that we would make you our everything. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.